There are a handful of films, Battleship Potemkin, Citizen Kane, Rashomon, Breathless, Psycho, Persona, 2001, Pulp Fiction, The Matrix, that have been the subject of such intense scrutiny, you might think they're the only films worthy of analysis. Another title that belongs on that list is Ridley Scott's 1979 masterpiece, Alien. Which means that there has already been so much written about it. Feminism, Freudianism, Marxism, biomechanics, body horror, that there is hardly anything new to say about it. In which case, let us begin at the beginning. Once upon a time, film credits were nothing more than the means by which companies announced the title of their movie. Then, in 1908, Biograph Studios noticed that audiences were reacting very favourably to a particular actress, with fans writing to the studio, asking when she would next appear. Initially, she was known only as the Biograph Girl, but to her family and friends, she was Florence Bridgewood. But such was her popularity, the Biograph's rival, the Independent Moving Picture Company of America, soon offered Bridgewood a more lucrative contract. She said yes, they renamed her Florence Lawrence, and in March 1910, the first movie star was born. But, star or no star, the cast's names were still presented only as announcements on a title card. But then gradually, some filmmakers came to realise that the credits could actually be integrated into the film's fabric. The letters could be conceptualised to introduce the themes to come. The most celebrated examples of this are probably Alfred Hitchcock's collaborations with Saul Bass. Before Hitchcock thrilled, disturbed and shocked audiences with that trio, in 1955 you had Robert Aldrich's Kiss Me Deadly, where the credits scroll down the screen. And before that topsy-turvy thriller, Billy Wilder opened his 1950 film with the camera angled on the gutter of Sunset Boulevard. Now picture the opening credits to these films. Now consider the opening credits to Ridley Scott's Alien. Before Ridley Scott directed feature films, he directed commercials. And before he directed commercials, he was an art director at the BBC. And before he was an art director at the BBC, he was a student at the Royal College of Art in London. So, he was bringing to Alien an impeccably trained and original eye to a very familiar and cliché genre. But, unlike the pristine blue brightness of 2001 and Star Wars, Alien offers us beige. NASA research shows that beige is the colour of deep space. But to the uneducated eye, the opening shot of Alien looks dirty with industrial waste and pollution. We see a planet and slowly the camera pans across its vast expanse. 
a series of oblong blocks appear on the screen. First, a vertical line dead center on the top. Then in the top left corner, another block, but this time at an angle. Then top right, another block at an opposite angle. With the vertical line in the center, they appear symmetrical. Next, two more vertical lines on either side of the central one, so the white slabs continue to mirror one another. At first they are illegible, by which I mean they don't read as anything resembling a word. Perhaps the dashes are some sort of hieroglyphic or intergalactic Morse code. But then some horizontal links appear, and the symmetry is broken, and we realise the signs spell the movie title. Why that design? Because it needs to be decoded. And it needs to be decoded because it is deceptive. What appears to be one thing has a tendency of morphing into something else. It's a funny habit of shedding his cells and replacing them with polarised silicon, which gives him a prolonged resistance to adverse environmental conditions. Is that enough? That's funny. What does it mean? Please don't do that. Thank you. I'm sorry. Well, it's an interesting combination of elements making him a tough little son of a bitch. And you let him in. The score is by Jerry Goldsmith, who by the time he did Alien, had nine Oscar nominations for the likes of Planet of the Apes, Patton and Chinatown, as well as an Academy Award for The Omen. But despite Goldsmith's immense reputation, Ridley Scott's first choice had been Isao Tomita, a Japanese avant-garde composer who specialised in electronic and synthesizer music. It's impossible to say whether Tomita would have been a better choice, but we can say his contribution would have been very different and unexpected. But either way, the irony is that when it came time for Goldsmith to view a rough cut of the film, he found that Scott and his editor Terry Rawlings had been using a lot of Goldsmith's previous compositions as a temp track. And Scott had grown so very attached to those melodies that he didn't want them changed. Here is Goldsmith. It didn't go over too well and uh, really I had major disagreements over that. So then I subsequently wrote a new main title which was the obvious thing, weird and strange, and which everybody loved, and I didn't love, and it was very interesting. Consequently, I, I kept getting kudos for years after on the main title I wrote for Alien, which was not exactly my choice, and the original one I wrote took me like a day to write it, and the alternate one took me about five minutes to write. But while Goldsmith felt that what was wanted was beneath what he had originally provided, the same cannot be said for the film's visual design. That visual design came about by the collapse of another project alien writer Dan O'Bannon had been developing, Frank Herbert's sprawling sci-fi novel Dune. O'Bannon had gone to Paris to collaborate with director Alexander Jodorowsky, and while there, O'Bannon met with Swiss artist H.R. Geiger, whom Jodorowsky had engaged to conceptualise Dune's monster creatures. The project collapsed, but however disappointed O'Bannon may have been, he was undoubtedly buoyed by his contact with Geiger, certain that Geiger's phantasmagorical images of biomechanics 
were a perfect fit for his alien script. Here is Geiger recalling his initial reaction to O'Bannon's concept. I think something with human hands is always scary, very scary. So I, I had the finger, the long fingers, what is the most important part on the face hugger. And then it's a part, there's a, a little sexual, like, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> the tube for uh, that this beast has to to put in the, in the mouth. So, while Alien's visual design was born out of the collapse of another film, its overall story design is, fittingly, a hybrid of many other sci-fi stories. As O'Bannon himself said, I don't steal from anybody, I steal from everybody. To begin, there are two short stories, both published in 1939 in the Astounding Science Fiction magazine, and both written by Canadian writer A.E. Van Vocht. Although The Black Destroyer and Discord and Scarlet have separate plots, when put together they detail a space crew taking aliens aboard their ship, only to find that the creatures lay eggs in the crew and then kill them. When, some 40 years later, Van Vogt got to see Alien, he successfully sued for plagiarism. However, the curious thing is that Van Vogt himself was, shall we say, inspired by an entire novel published in 1938. Who Goes There was written by John Campbell Jr, who was the then editor of Astounding Science Fiction magazine. Campbell's novel focused on a group of researchers who come across a crashed spaceship in the Antarctic. Nothing is found on board, but soon a lethal shape-changing alien is attacking the researchers one by one. There have been three adaptations of Who Goes There. The first brought to the screen in 1951 by Christian Nebe and released as The Thing from Another World. The second version, known simply as The Thing, was directed by John Carpenter in 1981. And then, in 2011, Mathis van Heineken Jr.'s version operated as a prequel to the original. Here is Nebe's version. Look here, I took this from under the soft tissue in the palm of the hand. Seed pod? What? Seed pod? Yes, the neat and unconfused reproductive technique of vegetation. No pain or pleasure as we know them. No emotions, no heart. Our superior, our superior in every way. Then there are two B-movies, beginning in 1958, with Edward L. Kahn's It, The Terror from Beyond Space. That plot sees the first manned expedition to Mars returning to Earth. But unknown to the crew, an alien life form has stowed itself aboard and begins killing them one by one. The film climaxes with the alien being trapped in an airlock. Recovery! Band and shield at the reactor! I hope that door holds if it wants out. Bob, hurry up! And finally, from 1966, there is Curtis Harrington's Queen of Blood, produced by Roger Corman. There, a group of scientists receive a distress call from an alien spaceship that has crash-landed on Mars. The rescue team recover the alien survivor, but she is revealed to be a blood-sucking killer trying to do they they sent her to earth to find a new feeding ground for her race to them we're just animals to be eaten but undoubtedly the most startling element in the film actually takes its cue from the natural world specifically the parasitoid wasp this group of wasp which encompasses multiple species lay their eggs in caterpillars beetles insects and other bugs when the eggs hatch they crunch their way through the living host. 
Admittedly, several film scenes were cut from the finished film, but what resulted was something as ruthlessly efficient as the xenomorph itself, with O'Bannon's plot constructed around sequences of roughly 15 minutes each. A quarter of an hour in, three members of the crew, Dallas, Lambert and Kane, played respectively by Tom Skerritt, Veronica Cartwright and John Hurt, head out to find the source of the distress signal. The next sequence climaxes with the egg opening up and attacking Kane. The next sequence ends with the facehugger detaching itself from Kane, and another quarter of an hour passes before the shocking chest burster. It is widely known the preparation that Scott and his crew undertook for this scene, going so far as to conceal from the cast members exactly how Kane would meet his death. But what is often overlooked is the careful measuring of time Scott takes in the aftermath. Just as Alfred Hitchcock had done in Psycho after the shower scene, Scott knew that his audience would have been so shocked by the events that they would need a few moments to recover. After which the surviving crew members, including Ash, Brett, Parker and Lieutenant Ripley, played respectively by Ian Holm, Harry Dean Stanton, Yafet Koto and Sigourney Weaver, try to figure out a way to capture the creature. This leads them back into the same tunnels and corridors that opened the film. But within 15 minutes, the xenomorph has killed Captain Dallas. Dallas? No. Take it easy. Dallas? Which means Lieutenant Ripley emerges as the film's leader and ultimately a cinematic icon. With her newfound authority, Ripley engages directly with the ship's computer and discovers that the entire mission has been a setup. Ash has been protecting the alien in the service of the Whalen Utami Corporation, at which point Ash attacks Ripley and as Parker comes to her defence, Ash is decapitated and revealed to be an android. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. A survivor. And all clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. After that, it's a countdown with Parker, Lambert and Ripley trying to evacuate the ship. The sequences are again divided into 15 minute segments. The first one ending with the deaths of Parker and Lambert, with the finale bringing Ripley back into the maze of corridors that by now have been transformed into chambers of death. With just 15 minutes left, Ripley secures her cat Jonesy, and from there it's an excruciating face-off inside the emergency shuttle. Why do audiences enjoy horror? We're told it's because horror offers a vicariously thrilling and thus safe experience. I don't believe that. I think the real function of horror is instructive. Our nature has been shaped over millions of years to be cautious of the natural world, 
prehistoric man's greatest fear was to fall victim to a carnivorous predator. So, whether out hunting or back in the cave, there was always a deeply ingrained awareness of being attacked. Which means that in the instance of Alien, the hunters have gathered their goods and are returning home when they are alerted to a voice from deep in the forest. Because of another human trait, empathy, they go to investigate. They're attacked, and worse, they unwittingly bring the beast back to the cave. And that displays yet another human trait, fallibility. Which is precisely why we need to be vigilant.